I recall going to the Pentagon to be asked how much oil did I think Iraq would produce? And I said, I thought about one to two million barrels a day. And the questioner was saying, surely you mean six million barrels a day? And I said, no, I don't think that's possible. You're dealing with something which is very different. It will take time, if ever, to get to these very big numbers. So I think, you know, a lot of everybody looks at resources the whole time. They're very important to people, uh, and they have been part of the equation. When you were invited to the Pentagon to be asked how much oil Iraq would produce, when was that? Uh, during the, uh, I think, I actually can't remember the date, uh, but it was sometime around the invasion of Iraq. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is John Brown. John is a member of the House of Lords of the British Parliament, the chairman of Beyond Net Zero, a climate growth equity venture, and the former group and the former group chief executive of British Petroleum, leading the company from 1995 to 2007. In 1997, John broke ranks with the rest of the oil and gas industry and delivered a landmark speech in Stamford on the impact of burning fossil fuels on the climate. This conversation begins with John and I discussing conflicts over three main areas that he identifies, values, trade and resources, with John revealing that he was invited to the Pentagon around the invasion of Iraq. We then talk about his tenure at BP, with him saying that everything began to change in 1992, insisting that the oil and gas industry was working on the problem but needed to have a solution to offer the world before revealing their insights to the public. He insists that he and his executive team knew very little. We then discuss the complicated relationship between governments, oil majors and oil supplies, with John insisting that consumers do have a role in changing their demands, that this can be done through public education or impelling the public through new government policies. Finally, he reveals a truly excellent idea that I had not yet come across, which is leveraging government procurement budgets to drive the demand for carbon-free industry. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. John, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. A pleasure. My first question for you is, why is the world in crisis? So the world is normally in crisis. It's just that there are periods in history where we don't notice the crisis so much. 
but I you know, noticed that people talk about interest rates being high at five to six percent. And in my, in my past experience, they're not that high. Uh, inflation is higher than 2%, but it's not 20%. Uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, frozen conflicts in the world, and there are some very active conflicts at the moment, not least Ukraine uh, and Israel. So a lot of things are happening, and I, I think I would diagnose it as an amateur uh, to say that COVID made people very anxious. And the, there's been no ability to let that anxiety go down. So people observe crisis more and more as a result of that. Uh, but the world is always in crisis. Uh, it's very difficult for neighbors to live with each other. Uh, things go wrong. Uh, people worry about conspiracy. They worry about power balance in the world. And inevitably, the world has changed with two superpowers, the United States and China, and everyone's trying to figure out what that means. And we've gone past, I think, the period of, of uh, perfectly formed globalization uh, with no difficulties. Clearly, it's caused difficulties, and things will need to be revised in one way or another. And what does that mean, revised? Well, it means we have to find uh, a way of living with each other. Uh, you know, reconstructing supply chains, deciding just how much diversification we need, you know, who makes the chips, where should they be made, what security do we need? Uh, we forgot all that, you know, when the world went into just-in-time manufacturing and everything moved from country A to country B perfectly, uh, nobody thought about that. Well, they probably did think about it, but they didn't do anything about it. So now, We've got all these trade relationships to sort out. We have these power relationships to sort out. We have to think a lot more about reactions of different nations um, than we have done in the recent past. I think we used to think a lot about that, certainly during the Cold War and uh, during the build-up towards uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, so this is all... As it were, it's not quite history repeating itself. It's the same behaviors repeating themselves. We need to think clearly about how do we make these relationships work. We come back to this point that the world is not uh, conflict-free. It never has been. There have always been frozen conflicts uh, from the smallest to the largest. If you look at Europe, for example, there are quite a few frozen conflicts. Can you define frozen conflict for me? Certainly. Uh, things where there's been a, a, sta a, a stalemate, a standoff, uh, some least division, uh, some something that has been partly settled but flares up again and again. Now, what do nations um, typically have conflicts over? Trade uh, and values uh, and resources. Uh, that those probably are the things that really concern, that, that, that create conflicts. I think values are very concerning to people, you know. Who gets to say what? Am I being submerged by um, a culture that I don't approve of? Do I need a voice? Am I respected in the 
the table of power brokers? Or am I being submerged as, as a, you know, as a, a, almost a colony of somewhere, somewhere else, you know, and it's been going on for a long time. I mean, de Gaulle's response to the United States alone, uh, is an example of that where, you know, culture was in his view being severely threatened. So, so I think values are very important. Trade is important. You know, everybody relies on probably trade around the world. There are very few self-contained nations. The United States actually is one of the more self-contained. Uh, the market is so big, uh, but a lot of other places in the world rely on trade. And so, you know, when that goes wrong or someone exploits it and appears to exploit it, cause conflict. Um, and then there's resources. So the world's resources are very unevenly and strangely distributed. Uh, and, uh, they have to go from A to B, uh, and people need access to them because they, they make things like permanent magnets, you know, with rare earths, uh, uh, polysilicon for solar, uh, chip manufacturing, all, all sorts of things like that. So they're all in the resources category, energy resources of all sorts. What would you say we've had the most conflict over? in the last 50 years? Well, um, I think it's been, um, over, so this is after the second world wars. Mm. I, I think it's primarily been, uh, I think containment of terrorism. It's been, I think, uh, a big issue for people. You know, if you don't contain a country, will it spread, uh, bad ideas and bad activity to another one. So I think that's been important. There has been an underlying question in the Middle East about who controls the oil resources, primarily it's not gas, the oil resources. Uh, there have been standoffs, of course, with values, you know, so, um, Iran and, you know, the rest of the Middle East and the West, uh, values there, which drive then, uh, a belief that they need all the resources they can get, including nuclear power stations. And what will they do with that, uh, material? So it, it's been, but a lot of it's been in the cause of, I'd think, terror. Uh, I think the split up of Yugoslavia has been the decomposition of, a of a organized, organized entity that probably couldn't survive just so many different sets of values, uh, inside that one entity. So after the strong person who ran it disappeared, then it inevitably collapsed into many, many warring states. To focus on the terror part of conflict, the initial pushback, especially that we're hearing it at the moment, I would say in this sort of geopolitical context is that, well, terror has tended to be a response from the domination and colonization from other nations. And we know now the weapons of mass destruction that the United States and the United Kingdom allegedly went looking for in Iraq wasn't really why they were entering. It was in order to shore up oil resources. Um, and that plus the um, invasion of Afghanistan, Syria has hugely destabilized the, the region. And a lot of campaigners um, 
and academics are now saying it's all a resource bid, really. So what about this kind of historical relationship as well to, you know, the desire for resources coming out of the British Empire, particularly that had the largest uh, empire in the history of humankind and was definitely exploiting and extorting. Um, and then also that link to fossil fuels, which is obviously something we want to get into in this conversation. Um, how the access to that kind of energy funded or fueled the capacity for such an empire. And it's now the result of that inequitable distribution of resources and the thieving of others' resources that has created a world in which we now see um, terror possibly as a response to people having been colonized for generations. So I think, um, you know, it would be easy for me to say, well, how interesting. Uh, I, I think what I would say is this. First of all, I don't think it's as straightforward as that. Mm -hmm. Secondly, explanations like that, which lead to one point, are generally wrong, and they may be partly right. So there's time and a place where people, I think, have divided the world up for resources. Uh, you know, the agreements reached around the Middle East and the states there were decidedly about resources. Uh, the impact of uh, the British government and the American government on Mossadegh in Iran, who was an elected prime minister that subsequently was removed and the Shah was brought back, probably started off a lot of the trouble that uh, one sees today. But, but it's not all the reasons. Um, and indeed, there were concerns, I'm sure, honestly held, uh, that uh, Saddam Hussein had many uh, possibilities of doing very bad stuff uh, in the Middle East, which he'd done with Iran uh, during the, the Iran-Iraq war. So, but again, uh, it was very important, I think, to the West to have some sense of control over the energy resources that were there, the oil and gas that was there. I think, in my experience, heavily overstated. Uh, I think uh, I recall going to the Pentagon to be asked how much oil did I think Iraq would produce. And I said I thought about one to two million barrels a day. And the questioner was saying, surely you mean six million barrels a day. And I said, no, I don't think that's possible. You're dealing with something which is very different. It will take time, if ever, to get to these very big numbers. So I think, you know, a lot of everybody looks at resources the whole time. They're very important to people. Uh, and they have been part of the equation. I don't think the whole equation always. Um, Certainly, you know, it, there was a, a scramble during the Second World War to get tobacco to have uh, control over the resources there. So there were lots of events like this, but they weren't the only reason for what was going on. They were part of the reason, uh, and maybe in some cases quite a small part. May I ask, um, when you were invited to the Pentagon to be asked how much oil Iraq would produce, when was that? Uh, during the, uh, I think, I actually can't remember the date, uh, but it was sometime around the invasion of Iraq. Okay. I think, um, no, of course we must be 
nuanced in all of our analyses. And it is the lack of a nuance that is causing a huge sort of deal of political problems as well in terms of discussion, whether that's between nation states or even between neighbours in the same cities. Um, however, resources does seem to be a common thread that comes back again and again and again throughout humankind's history. Um, you mentioned the tobacco uh, and tobacco industry. I'd like to get into that because... The oil and gas industry has recently come under very heavy fire um, from both academia and campaigners because uh, Naomi Oreskes and her team at Harvard University pulled up this research that showed that uh, the oil and gas industry knew about uh, climate change and the impact that their industry was having on climate change as early as 1977. Uh, they hired their own scientists to produce these reports and then tried to bury the science. And instead of taking accountability for the impact of their product on the Earth's atmosphere, um, they engaged in decades of climate denialism, misinformation, propaganda campaigns, etc. Now, you were head of BP, uh, in, you began in 1995, I believe. How much, how much did the industry know? How much did, did you know? Because you were the CEO that broke rank essentially and gave the first speech in 1997 at Stanford University and said, it's a problem. We have a problem and we have to do something about it. But how much did BP know or did the executive team know before 1997? I have no idea how much the industry knew. Uh, and I think, you know, all quite secretive uh, sort of industry. What was very clear was post the Rio summit, uh, something was happening. Which year was that, sorry? Uh, 92, I think it was. Um, I think it was 92, I can't remember. Uh, and uh, there was, it was clearly something was happening. The question was, what was the data showing? And did it, was there a reasonable probability that it was right? So when I became CEO in 95, the first thing we did was actually ask everybody who was an expert in this area to come and talk to us and look at all the work that's going on. BP being a geotechnical company uh, could understand a lot of that. We concluded at the end that actually, and this was, I think, just after the first report of the IPCC or its predecessor, that there was sufficient probability for us to take action now. Uh, and that's what we did. It took us, therefore, some while to align the inside of the company to this conclusion and to work out what we'd actually do. There was really no point in standing up and saying, we have a problem. Uh, you have to have, you have to stand up and say, we have a problem and here's our solution. And mm. that takes rather longer than just throwing your hands up and saying, gosh, what do we do? Uh, so in 1997, when I stood up in May, we not only said there's a problem, we said, and this is what we're going to do, and this is what we expect other people to do, and we want to have a dialogue about that. So it was an action plan, which actually was followed during my entire tenure as a CEO. So that was very important to do that. Okay, there's a couple of little... Um bits I think we need to pull up. So I found a video. Um, well, I found somebody who had found a video 
that BP produced in 1991 called What Makes Weather. And it looks like it was produced for a curriculum. Um, and in this 1991 video with the BP branding all over it, it talks about climate change and the impact of fossil fuels on the climate and the fact that burning um, natural gas, coal and oil produces CO2, which causes a greenhouse gas effect, and that the impacts of this change to our climate could be devastating, including um, it worsening um, floods, storms, droughts, uh, population dispossession, all of these kinds of things. That was in 1991 in some small part of BP that was producing this information. So it's it's hard for the public to believe that people weren't well, aware. On. First of all, I, I don't know anything about this video. It was after before my time as CEO. Hmm. And if you're going to show me a video nowadays, I'd want to prove that actually it isn't fake. Okay. Uh, it's I'd on the want, BP website. Even so, I'd still like to make sure it really is actually what BP said. It's very insightful if BP said that, but I want to remind you that there's a difference between saying something's happening and actually working out what the probability of that happening is, and more importantly, taking action about it. That's quite important. You know, the world is full, if I may say so, of commentators saying, we have a problem. We know that. We've got to get on. Had we started solving the problem 26 years ago, we'd be in a very different position than we are today. Mm -hmm. Very different indeed. Mm -hmm. And it's only now, after all this time, that the industry is actually coming along and saying, yes, we need to do something. And it isn't necessarily enough. It isn't necessarily, actually, it's not enough. It isn't enough. Mm -hmm. One, before we get into the action plan and talking about how you know things haven't changed uh, as much as they needed to, one thing that BP did participate in and is kind of known as the, the originator of, of the term carbon footprint. So they hired Ogilvy and Mather in the early 2000s to produce a PR campaign that is now widely seen as a way to offset responsibility onto the individual consumers. Um, was that part of the action plan to delay whilst trying to figure no, out what happened? Absolutely not. Um... And I think, uh, I think that was a well-meaning point to say that, you know, people could look to see what they were doing. It didn't absolve anybody for uh, doing bigger things industrially. Clearly didn't, you know, and we mm. invested in wind and solar well before the technologies were ripe. We wanted to price carbon. We did that inside uh, the company, a variety of things like that. So I think these things go hand in hand. Uh, in the end, people, it would be good to know, you know, how much carbon you produce. It doesn't mean to say that that's the only place that you reduce carbon. Uh, but when people demand carbon-free products, it changes the world. And if they know what the carbon content is, they will demand more and more product. Now, they have the consequences of that. People have to work out how to make it uh, and supply it, but they do eventually. I suppose this is um, a kind of debate that happens quite a bit, this relationship between, you know, consumer, citizen as consumer and state as provider. I was on a panel recently in France and we had this very extraordinary nuanced conversation around what to do uh, around greenwashing. And I said, well, any, frankly, at this stage, anything that isn't contraction is greenwashing. And there was a CEO of a, of a cosmetics company as well on the panel. 
And um, he didn't say too much throughout the thing. And at the end, tried to get the last word in and said, well, you just need to tell, you know, the people to change what they want and then we will meet their demands. And um, it caused a bit of a, an uproar. <clears throat> I might have responded quite fervently. Um, but it, I often hear from people, but if the product was different, I would just take the different product. I remember speaking to somebody recently that said, you know, if I just, if I couldn't fly anymore, I just wouldn't. We would just find other ways to do it. So is there not a kind of incumbent um, duty of care from the oil and gas industry to do more to invest in the renewable sector to make it the new product that then people will take? Because as we've seen in, in the last year, BP and Shell, Exxon, they've all slashed uh, the amount of investments going into the renewable um, development sectors. Well, I'm no longer associated sure. with any of those companies. So you must ask them uh, for the reasons why they're making these statements and, and what they mean by it. I, I, I think in, in business sense is the following. To be in energy which is not oil and gas is a different skill set than the skill set you need in oil and gas. Now, some oil and gas companies may have those skills and should be investing in those areas. But equally, there are plenty of other companies that are investing in new energy, notably, you know, I mean, there, there are plenty of Orsted and RWE, let's pick a couple. Uh, and they do it very, very well. So the main point is someone has to be doing this. We have to increase the amount uh, of non-carbon energy in the world, and rather dramatically. Now, a lot of investments going in, but we've only just reached the point when the total growth of global demand in energy is actually met by renewable energy. So it's just the bit that's the growth is being met by renewable energy. So a lot more to go. So everybody does what they can do. I think one has to look at a, a broader question of what state imperative is uh, in, in around the world. And I don't think one can confine it to a, a very small view of, let's say, the UK or France. Uh, these are not where the world really is. It, it's the United States, it's China, and it's the emerging and developing economies. Uh, it's the oil-producing states. So everybody has a different agenda. It's unlikely that an oil-producing state is going to voluntarily shut down oil and gas production uh, because it may destroy the state, create civil disturbance, maybe uh, you know upend governments, all this sort of thing. So everybody has to do what they're going to do, and we have to think about where best to do that. Uh, so I think this is, if I can come back to, it's a combination of consumers, the people who buy things and use things. It's the industries that make them, can they do better and better? And it's the governments who control the local politics and everything is local. Uh, that can catalyze what industry can do and or what the consumer is induced to do. So I think, again, complicated around the world. One size does not fit all. Having said that, I think everything is, should be done 
to drive to the point where individual nations actually make commitments to reduce greenhouse gases, which they did in Paris at the COP meeting in Paris, but actually stick to them with real plans. <laughs> That's the dream. <laughs> Government well, there is unfortunately no other solution. I don't believe that the world has yet developed global world governance. Hmm. Well, I mean, I suppose there's an argument for um, legislation, uh, international treaties, that kind of thing. We've tried that and, and they tend not to work very much. I think one of the nations that doesn't like signing international treaties, for example, is the United States. Mm. Yes. So what else can we do? Um, because you and I had a, a conversation a few months ago now and we were talking about um, this pressure that can be put onto shareholders. And you said, well, the thing that um, people need to understand is that uh, boards of directors can make changes to the bottom line or to company structures by explaining to shareholders that this will benefit them in the long run. Can you speak to that? So I, I do think that, um, you know, I've always been of the view that companies, you know, while driven by quarterly results, which is, you know, probably a new thing. I mean, mm. it, it's not been around forever. Uh, also have to realize that their value is determined by how much they're worth in the end. Uh, and that means taking a longer term view of how you're going to be in business and what you're going to do. Uh, and you have to do it in line with the business you're in. So uh, for example, uh, right now I run a, a fund, a private equity fund, a growth private equity fund. Uh, called Beyond Net Zero, it's three and a half billion dollars of investing in companies who actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions along the lines, exactly in line with the science-based targets established for the sector, which take you on a pathway to net zero by 2050. So there are plenty of companies that do that, uh, and that's what we do. At this stage, in an industrial sense, what they do, a lot of them, is to improve efficiency and effectiveness by therefore reducing the need to absorb carbon. Uh, and that's what they do. So, for example, if you can stop people going zigzagging back and forth with a truck, let's say, to take goods from A to B, you can do it once, you save an awful lot of carbon. And that's called, in a very simple way, supply chain management. But it's much more complicated than that. So uh, that's an example. So I, th I think companies of all sorts, a lot of them, I think, you know, are genuinely trying. They also genuinely fail uh, in this area. People are keen to produce carbon-reduced goods. But you know, the big pressure on most people, of course, is they're not prepared to pay extra for those goods and they're more expensive to produce. Now, in some cases, uh, the less carbon inputs uh, are diluted by the total cost. So for example, to make a car, an automobile with green steel, the green steel is probably 25% more expensive than regular steel. 
But by the time you've finished making a car, it probably adds one to 2% to the total cost of the car. So can you persuade people to buy it for that? Can you absorb that cost through some other efficiency? That's what's being debated at the moment. So I think more and more of this will happen, but people will must want it. People must want it. Now they can be partly impelled to want it by government policy, which is a good thing if it's put in, in place in a wise way, or they can simply be educated, you know, say, this is really good. I really want to help. I want to do that. That won't happen in every economy in the world. There may be plenty of economies where people are brought up to believe that having carbon, i.e. having hydrocarbons make things is a good thing. I think this this question of impelling uh, rather than compelling, impelling citizens to to want different things is is very interesting. But it seems to me part of the conversation that doesn't seem to be happening more generally, um, certainly within government circles, is the willingness to start subsidizing different things. So the oil and gas industry is still heavily, heavily uh, subsidized. From what I understand, it wouldn't be profitable if it weren't subsidized um, by governments. And it would seem that we could shift kind of the the focus and shift prices that make things more accessible to people by shifting what we subsidize. Maybe, but I think uh, if you look at the su so-called subsidies for oil and gas, they are very unevenly distributed around the world, I think. Right. I don't see the UK government subsidizing oil and gas. Actually, they're correctly uh, taxing windfalls at the moment. So, uh, and, and in the US, it's unclear whether it's subsidized or not. You have to, it's a very complex tax system uh, that allows people to, you know, take deductions. So we don't know whether it's subsidized or not. Uh, but clearly, there are plenty of other places in the world where it is. Oh, I was sure that the UK government subsidized. I read a piece in the Financial Times just this week about how they're stopping um, foreign subsidies, so subsidies for foreign oil and gas, but keeping the domestic ones. I may have misunderstood that, though. Uh, you probably were ahead of me. Okay. <laughs> um, the other thing that I wanted to get your expertise on to kind of elucidate is I was I had an off-the-record conversation with a Shell executive Um a few months ago, and they said, the thing that people don't understand is that the super majors like BP and Exxon actually only produce a fraction of the of fossil fuels in the world. The rest is done by state-owned companies. And this is why we get this sort of, you know, double bind, essentially, where we see governments not really doing enough, not sticking to their climate um, pledges to reduce emissions. Um, and fossil fuel production still going up because it's actually 90%, what he told me, 90% of um, fossil fuels are produced by state-owned companies. And that seems to be kind of missing from the, the public discourse. Um, who's, I suppose, I suppose, I know it's all of our responsibilities, but how much responsibility do these super majors have that get most of the heat from the public versus these huge, giant um, state-owned companies well, that are producing it, far it, more. It is, it's the point I think I made earlier in this interview that, you know, every nation is different. So there are plenty of nations which in effect are oil companies. Think about it. 
um, in Saudi Arabia is, of course, heavily Saudi Aramco. Mm -hmm. So I think the data shows it's 80 to 85% is uh, produced by state companies who are, of course, under entirely different controls and entirely different motivations. You know, you're not going to stop Saudi Arabia producing oil. You're just not going to do that. Um, and I think when it comes to natural gas, it's a little bit more balanced, but it's still, I think, around more than 60% in the hands of state companies. They are invisible. Uh, they are nations, usually, uh, or quasi-nation uh, companies, state-owned companies, and somewhat immune from pressure, therefore, from many, many people. Um, there is some pressure from NGOs, uh, but sometimes very difficult to exercise. Uh, for example, NGOs pressuring the oil and gas companies in Russia would be, I think, uh, something that just couldn't happen. So, uh, the burden of, um, criticism falls on the most visible uh, people who have gas stations around the world with shell signs on BP signs, total signs, and uh, they have to therefore uh, take it and deal with it. Uh, but uh, the, other, the other companies uh, will sit in the background. Do you think we're looking at a situation that if, um, if tomorrow we could snap our fingers and BP, Total, Shell, Exxon went fully renewable, would these state-owned companies just produce more to meet the, Absolutely. the gap? Absolutely. I'm afraid all would happen. We would uh, change the, the mix of where the oil and gas came from. And that would cause, I think, a lot of other issues to do with the balance of power. Absolutely. So is there any way that we can phase down fossil fuels whilst pursuing growth? So it depends what sort of growth, I think. Um, I think most people would say we really must think of different parts of the world in a different way. To deny emerging and developing economies growth is a very big statement. Mm -hmm. To moderate growth in the developed world, probably going to happen anyway, given what's going on with the economies at the moment. So I think one has to be very cautious in this. No, a lot of people talk about no growth world. It does consign a very large amount of the world to a very different future, which I don't agree with. Um, so I think we need to, to think about, you know, how do we solve this? I come back to saying through several routes. First is I do think we need to equip, uh, from the West to the developing and emerging economies, uh, we need to get capital to help them transition. We must do that. Uh, and also to provide uh, nature-based solutions to climate change, most of which reside in the emerging and developing economies. Could you... I think it's a very important step, one which I hope will happen um, in, in, in the COP meeting this year or maybe next year. Could you define nature-based solutions for us, please? Certainly. It's things like planting a mangrove uh, a forest or it's preserving a forest that would otherwise be cut down, 
or say she's planting a forest. Things like this. Mangrove, very, very effective, five times more CO2 absorption than a tree. So her weight. So uh, I, I think that um, solutions are therefore for the for the for the developed world to help the, the the rest of the world, and for the developed world to go back and say, you know, what what do you want to do here? I come back to the commitments made in Paris. If we actually did that, we would change the nature of the world. Otherwise. There is a consequence. There is a consequence. And the consequence is a very large amount of upheaval as plenty parts of the world will not be habitable and cannot grow food. For the very, very rich, I'm sure we can find ways of putting ourselves into places where we wouldn't notice too much of a change. Mm. Um, but it's not clear. Even that's clear. What is clear is that a lot of the world will be heavily affected, will migrate, uh, the politics of the world will change. So inaction is not free. It's not free. There's a big global political consequence. And I go further to say action actually does create a better form of growth. There's a way of changing industry. You know, carbon-free steel, carbon-free cement. These take time and energy to invest in and may take government catalysts to kickstart the activity. So, but people need to be sure that the government's there. And, you know, for example, wouldn't it be nice if all governments said, we're no longer going to buy cement unless it's carbon free. How about mm -hmm. that? Uh, you know, those things are very important. And they change everything. They change everything. Uh, and, and I think that all of that is still possible. I think we've left it too late to stay at one and a half degrees for the moment. But whatever we do, we've got to speed up. And that means getting a lot of investment into the world. So part of that is charging people for carbon. That has to happen one way or another. Right. Uh, buying things which are less carbon intensive, carbon free. And the place to start is governments because they have big procurement budgets. Uh, and maybe they should be setting the standard. EVs, you know, uh, renewable fuels, all these sorts of things. Uh, there's an enormous amount the public sector can do just by buying things. It's less of a damaging subsidy than just handing money out. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'd never thought of that. Um, leveraging the public sector budget to kind of usher in these... Procurement new... is the number one thing to change things. That is fascinating. Um, my penultimate question, if you could just... Would you like to comment quickly on what our British, gover our British government's current climate policies, given uh, Sunak's recent rollback on anything. Half well, of course, it's confused. I, I, I go back to the UK was in a very good position. It invented the Climate Change Committee. That was a brand new idea. It invented carbon budgets. It invented a rigorous legislation that committed us to do certain things. 
and it had some interesting, stunningly good targets to do things like heat pumps, uh, EVs, things like that. So these changes that have been made uh, begin to gnaw away at the reputation of the UK as a place, A, with very advanced climate thinking, and B, uh, a place where when someone says they're going to do something, they actually do it. So these two things combined really affect people who are about to invest. And they say, well, why don't we just wait a minute and see how it all settles down? Mm. So I think the summary is very confusing and has confused people who can actually do this sort of stuff. So let's see what happens. Um, in terms of, you know, I think the Climate Change Committee have looked at the impact of all these things. Probably in the global sense, doesn't make too much difference because we're quite a small nation anyway uh, in terms of the greenhouse gas balances in the world. But it's more important than that. It's about reputation in the end. Thank you. My final question for you is, who would you like to platform? So I've thought about this a little bit, and I think it's someone who has long-term, really long-term thinking and looks at the world through a different lens. So I pick an artist. In fact, I pick Wolfgang Kuhlmanns, a great photographer, a philosopher, and someone who has views. Uh, so I have a large amount of respect for him, in particular when I was the chairman of the Tate Galleries, uh, Wolfgang was a trustee, and I learned a lot from him, and I think he would be an admirable person to speak to. What a wonderful recommendation, and quite a surprise. John, thank you so much, and thank you so much for your time. A pleasure. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com, where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.